Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. Have we experienced the death of the teen comedy as we know it? That was the sentence that opened up the first ever episode of the Afternoon Special podcast a year ago, which is a very insane thing to say, but we will save the mushiness of that for the end of the episode. Now, when I say teen comedy, I'm talking about your mean girls, clueless, she's all that, aquamarine, bring it on, big fat liar, you get it. And a year ago, I was convinced that those classics just didn't really exist anymore. And being candid, that summation was prompted by the pretty egregious She's All That remake that came out around this time last year called He's All That. He's All That was clearly attempting to capture the lightning in a bottle fun that those teen comedies I mentioned above were able to have, but it was a very hollow representation of what those movies really were. However, I recently just watched another Netflix original film that changed my opinion on that, and that is Do Revenge, starring Camila Mendez and Maya Hawke. Now, if you follow me on Twitter or TikTok, you'll know that I really enjoyed this film and I have not been able to shut up about it pretty much. So much so that I had a completely different podcast episode planned for this week, but I changed it last minute because my brain simply cannot shake the concept of teen movies and teen comedies right now. So this week, we're revisiting the state of the teen comedy and exploring what it was, what it is, and where I think we're heading. So if that sounds good to you. Let's get started. So we've got to lay down some groundwork here for the teen comedy. When I mentioned those films earlier, I'm sure you could instantly remember some defining traits and major plot lines in each of them. And like many genre films, the teen comedy tends to follow a pretty strict set of visual or narrative markers. These films are usually marked by such traits as strong character archetypes like the nerd, the jock, the cheerleader, the goth, the outcast, etc. Think about The Breakfast Club, that pretty much nails all these archetypes in one go. They tended to only take place in school, with some minor exceptions being like a dance or a game, the mall, or someone's house, which makes sense as these tended to be the only places of note in the day-to-day -day life of an American teenager. And the age slash grade of the main characters was usually not called out, though if it was, they tended to mostly be graduating seniors or juniors as this was a major transitional moment for teens. But where did the teen movie, and more specifically the teen comedy, even begin? Well, we could categorize the teen comedy as a coming-of-age film, and to chart the beginning of that, we have to go all the way back to the 1950s. The beginning of the coming-of-age story actually coincides with the advent of the teenager, and that began in the 1950s. The 1950s introduced the concept of the teenager as a sector of the population and a new group to be marketed to. And with this obviously came media that was made with a teen demographic in mind. Now, this isn't to say that teens or people around the kind of 13 to 17 year old age group were being completely ignored. They were just seen as a part of a family unit. And this was the first time that they were given their own kind of sector of the market. The films often considered to be amongst the first of coming of age films are 1953's The Wild One and 1955's Rebel Without a Cause, which were amongst the first to cater a narrative almost exclusively to a teen audience, almost excluding the rest of their family unit, which was a very novel concept at the time. 
You also must remember that during this time, we got acts like Elvis that kind of revolutionized this idea of the teen fangirl and fandom as a whole. And then we also got, you know, fads, fad diets, fad fashion, all those different things. All those things kind of conglomerated around this time. The 60s introduced the beach party movies that made stars out of people like Annette Bonicello. A 2009 article from The Guardian describes them as films that, quote, developed a surefire formula in tune with the mood of the 60s, uniting music, comedy, and romance with surf, Californian sun, and skimpy bikinis, end quote. By the 70s, the teen movie would find success across a litany of other genres, like horror, with films like Carrie, and of course, the comedy. But it was by the 80s when the teen comedy fully had come of age, for lack of a better term. And much of that growth can be credited to the films of John Hughes. Hughes sought out to make films that could be relatable to the average teenager and represent the complex highs and lows of adolescence. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Pretty in Pink, The Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, these were known as some of the greatest coming-of-age films of all time for both the stories and the characters. Hughes handled the issues he put his characters in with care and never condescended the teenage experience. But he wasn't above capitalizing on how funny growing up can be sometimes. Additionally, his stories retained a sense of whimsy and magic with how certain situations played out. He perfectly balanced having relatable teen characters with an engaging narrative. Now, this isn't to say that the 1980s was only full of films that were filled with whimsy and magic, because we also got films like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which were maybe a more realistic take on the teen experience. So much so that the story of it was based on an actual high school in California. This journalist went undercover to kind of get a sense of what it was like to be a teenager in America at that time. So like late 70s, early 80s. And this journalist went undercover as a like exchange senior at this high school and was gathering notes and stories on kind of what teen life was like at that time. And then by the end of the school year, he revealed that he was like actually 23. um, And he revealed like what this grand plan was. And that story became the screenplay for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's really interesting. It's It's a bit strange, but really interesting. And while the 80s served as a coming out party of sorts for the teen movie, especially the teen comedy, it was the 90s and 2000s that served as the teen movie renaissance. You can actually credit the foundation of this renaissance coming from films like Heather's that popularized the dark teen comedy that would eventually pave the way for 90s teen movies like Scream and Jawbreaker. The 90s also began the classic literature to teen comedy pipeline with classics like Clueless and 10 Things I Hate About You that were based on classic literature stories. And of course, the 2000s had too many classics to count. Bring It On, Mean Girls, Big Fat Liar, Aquamarine, like just entirely, it's too many, it's too much, it's too much. However, in the last 10 years or so, the concept of the widely loved teen comedy has slowly become extinct. And even then, those films of recent years, like Booksmart and To All the Boys I Loved Before, are quite different in comparison to the She's All That and Mean Girls of the past. But what changed? How do we get there? So what accounted for the shift in the teen comedy that is now an almost 50-year film tradition? A lot of things, actually. (laughs) 
Musical breaks in the hallways, dramatic fallouts at prom, and the latest on who is dating who is probably what many of us thought high school was going to be like. And we were all probably a little let down that it was just asking your friends that they did the homework for biology and going in comically large friend groups to homecoming and prom. Teen comedies of before veered mainly on being an aspirational look at teen life, whether good or bad. And those aspirations were less from the audience and more from the people making these films and what they wished their teen years were like. And oftentimes these aspirations were probably better suited for college than high school. If you've seen any teen comedy from kind of the like renaissance period that I mentioned both in the 80s and the 90s, you can definitely attest to this that like, especially in the 90s with teen movies, it was full of almost exclusively like ridiculously affluent teenagers that were given little to no supervision um, and were able to have these like massive parties on the beach in these mansions and like all these crazy things were able to happen with like crazy drug use and a lot of like sexual activity this isn't to say that these things don't happen amongst teenagers they probably absolutely do but for a movie that kind of is supposed to be somewhat representative of what teen like a, almost like a snapshot of what teen life is like at whatever time the movie came out that's a bit of a stretch Modern teens have transitioned away from wanting to see this like aspirational media that idealize what being a teenager would be like, like in say Mean Girls. It has moved towards a more relatable or wanting to see teens that feel more real or feel more like them, like in Booksmart or Euphoria. And I want to make a little caveat and I made this in the first episode. I want to make it here now. Yes, should the content of euphoria be relatable to a lot of teenagers it probably should not if you've watched the show uh not the most aspirational thing um a lot of crazy things happening in that show um so i would hope that the average teenager doesn't fully relate to the uh actions and events of euphoria but i don't discount that that is a reality for a large segment of teens you know with the advent of the internet and social media those types of things tend to happen and also those have also just been the reality of a lot of teenagers for a long time that have kind of gone on underrepresented in media um, I think to a certain extent rightfully so because you don't want teens to aspire to something like that or to get any ideas but it would be kind of I would be remiss to say that that show is probably relatable for a lot of people and a lot of and was representative of what a lot of people's teenage life looked like. So I think pop culture's interpretation of teen life now is really grounded in realism or it's trying to be at least. And that isn't all that shocking because teens now have a greater consciousness of the world around them. Now obviously teenagers don't know everything and if you were a teenager listening to me you may think you know everything. I promise you you do not know everything. And uh, that trend continues for the rest of your life. You don't know anything until you know something, but then you still don't know anything about other things. That's just kind of what life is, at least as 23 year old me is, is thinking now. So like I said, I'm not saying that teenagers know everything nowadays, because in a lot of ways they do not, but they do know quite a bit I mean, they did grow up with all the information in the world at their fingertips, after all, and I think they put it to good use for the most part. 
So why wouldn't the media that's geared towards them reflect that? Another reason for this kind of shift in realism or reality is kind of from an industry perspective too, just from these films not really getting invested in anymore. There was a, uh, a clip from Matt Damon a couple of weeks ago. He was doing a Hot Ones interview and he talked about how the kind of mid-budget studio comedy or just mid-budget studio film in general kind of just doesn't exist anymore. And that's due in large part to the fact that with really like due in large part to the death of physical media, i.e. DVD sales. And a lot of these teen comedies would be considered under the umbrella of the mid-budget studio film. So because of all that that's happening industry-wise with DVD sales, which I mentioned this in a previous episode, but I want to reiterate it here, the reason why a lot of the films of like the 90s and 2000s, if you really think about just like the large influx of films being made around that time, the reason in large part that they were able to get made was because if you made a film it didn't really do well on a theatrical release, there was a chance that it was able to kind of get the second win via DVD sales. And that's almost, DVDs are almost like a branch of word of mouth. Like, you have you ever found yourself kind of going at that time to like a Blockbuster or like the $5 bin at a Walmart and you're just kind of sifting through and you find something that kind of looks good, you take it home, you watch it and you're like, wow, this is a really good movie. And then you tell other people, hey, like that movie wasn't that great in the theater, but like it's actually pretty good. And so that's how those types of films become your cult classics of the day or get this kind of weird second win or have this little cottage industry that it creates for itself. It was able to do that via physical media sales that were able to give it, you know, a bit of a boost after the theatrical run. So because that doesn't exist because physical media is on the decline because of the rise of streamers. And this isn't to say that those films straight up don't exist at all. They do. You can find them on streamers. And obviously when I mean by streamers, I mean your Disney Pluses, your Apple TV Pluses, Paramount Plus, all the pluses. <laughs> those, <laughs> those are like streaming platforms. Those films can be found there, but they're kind of treated more like content than they are films and you may hear that sentence and be like well that's the same thing that's not quite what I mean I mean content in the way of like this a podcast is content uh, a social media post is content whereas uh, a film is given a little bit more gravit there's a little bit more gravitas to it there's a little bit more grandeur to a film it's a lot more involved of a process not to say that content can't be in more involved of a process but the connotation is a little bit different you wouldn't equate a a video that you see on tiktok to a feature length film are they content in the way of they are things to watch yes but they are not content in the way of production and kind of just the the effort, I would say, of it. So on streamers, these movies are kind of treated as as content, these kind of like throwaway productions that no one will ever see, but they kind of just fill a void on a streamer. I think that's what the what was previously the mid-budget uh, comedy or the mid-budget studio film now is kind of just content on on a streamer. There was also another video that went in tandem with the Matt Damon 
um, video that I thought was brilliant, which someone brought up that the change in who's kind of at the top of a lot of these studios also kind of accounts for this, the shift, right? So when, you know, back in the day at the kind of the precipice of a lot of these studios, you had people that wanted to make money, obviously, but also loved movies, you know, had a genuine appreciation for the filmmaking process. Now, this isn't to say that every studio executive ever before this kind of current time period that we're in had this like insane understanding of filmmaking. But I can't say that a lot of them loved movies. I think that was kind of a like, it feels like a low bar to clear. But when you think about now, this person mentioned that a lot of these, you know, big studios are kind of headed by, you know, the tech bros of the world who focus on MBAs versus filmmaking and are kind of solely focused on the business side of films versus not really taking into consideration the artistry of it, then that kind of makes sense. You can kind of view everything as as content because that is a very tech forward way of viewing what what these what these movies and film and TV and whatever are. So I think that is from like a, a industry perspective why the teen comedy changed. And it was simply because the medium with which they existed in kind of forced them to either become extinct or become something completely different. So that's why I say like, yes, these films do exist, but they are treated in a much different way. The quality is a lot different. And the investment from a generation in these films um, isn't quite the same as it was. I think there are a lot of films from this time and from this era, um, you know, like the 90s, the 2000s, even the 80s, that were able to be kind of endearing across a generation. Like those movies are able to be heralded across a generation. It's like, this was indicative of this time. This was enjoyed you know, of this time. And this is kind of what we compare newer movies against. Like these are our classics of this generation. And I also wanted to offer kind of just how many of our favorite teen movies were distributed by large studios. Um, most of which being Paramount. Paramount was kind of Paramount, you know, in, in the teen, in the teen movie and investing in the teen movie and distributing the teen movie because like movies like Pretty in Pink, Mean Girls, Clueless, all distributed or produced by Paramount Pictures. Uh, She's All That was from Miramax. The more genre-heavy teen movies like Scream were distributed and produced by smaller production companies. And now those smaller production companies don't have the biggest chance of being able to secure you know, screen time in theaters because you know, of media conglomeration. And that is a whole other thing. Um, that's a an episode for another day as far as vertical integration and antitrust laws. But um, a lot of those films were distributed by, by big studios and those big studios now aren't investing in those movies as much as they were before. Um, I think also just kind of the, the tent polification a film also accounts for this when and what I mean by that is just like every movie is a big release every movie is is a big deal like it's supposed to be the happening the event 
And so either movies are these massive, like, you know, tentpole events, or there are these kind of just small kind of throwaway pieces. And there's no middle ground anymore, or at least the middle ground that was there doesn't exist in the same way. So I think another reason for this shift is that how the teen experience is being depicted is no longer centered in just the straight white teen, which I think is actually a more positive shift in the, in the teen movie. Teen comedies of the past were almost exclusively very white and very straight, and there was kind of zero inclusion of the nuances that minority teens have experienced. And if there were, they were stereotyped to hell. So while yes, these stories had some like universal aspects, minority teens had little to no meaningful representation that wasn't tied to their otherness. For example, in writing the script for this episode, I was hard pressed to think of a teen comedy from that peak era, so like the 90s, 2000s that I mentioned, that centered a person of color and didn't have some harmful stereotype caked into it. Now, the closest example that I could think of was Bring It On, a film that has deeper social commentary than many may give it credit for as it explored themes of cultural appropriation in the late 90s. But even then, these films were few and far between, and even then, the main characters of the film were Torrance and the Toros, not necessarily Isis and the Clovers. I would also like to say that Bring It On was meant to have more inclusion of the, the Clovers. There was kind of some, some shysty dealings that were happening. The first like test audience for the film wanted more of the Clovers to be included in the movie. When they ran the first initial trailer for Bring It On, they added these scenes that would make you believe that the Clovers were in more of the movie than they were. They retroactively went back and shot these like kind of random high school scenes with the Clovers and made it and added it to the trailer to make it seem like, oh, it's going to be kind of flip flopping back and forth a lot between you know, the Rancho Carne Toros and the East Compton Clovers. And then people saw the movie and they were just like, where are these scenes? And they were nowhere to be found because they were made solely for the trailer to make people think that the Clovers were in more of the movie than they were. I love Bring It On, but that was really messed up. That was very, very, very messed up. And I would also like to, to note that I'm not saying that no film like this existed from that time period. But I'm talking about the films that had the wide releases, the massive appeals, the ones that have kind of gone on to the echelons of time and, you know, are remembered. Those tended to be kind of the white teen comedies. And like the cast were almost exclusively white teens and then one person of color. And I, I, I kid you not, that person of color was almost always Gabrielle Union. She, it was, she was everywhere in teen comedies and she was almost always the only person of color in them. And even then she wasn't given a massive role, which is messed up. So not to mention that teen comedies of the past, while they had their humorous moments, these films were often fraught with somewhat casual racism, homophobia, fatphobia, transphobia, sexism. It was really just a smorgasbord of not so good things. And this also kind of comes from older people writing these scripts and kind of going off of what they think teens are like or what they were like as teens and you kind of just don't really get the warm and fuzzies and you don't get the most positive representation of what's happening and speaking as a 20-something who is a minority having a teen comedy that speaks to your experience while not exclusively 
focusing on your otherness is something that is necessary in the fight for representation. But I think that the tides are really beginning to turn. So I think current teen comedies are trying to mend this gap and address the downfalls of the past teen comedies, while also retaining the kind of fun aspects of what we loved about them. So obviously with films like To All the Boys I Loved Before and Booksmart and series like Never Have I Ever and The Sex Lives of College Girls, which is not technically like a teen comedy in that it takes place in high school, but it's popular amongst that group. These films and TV show are seeking to represent minority groups and give them a story that doesn't need to be drenched in trauma. And honestly, it's really, really refreshing. Growing up is hard enough, and sometimes you just need pieces of media that represent you and the experiences that you have without the added pressure of everything else. I think where teen comedies were struggling now and, you know, continue to struggle, this is a fight that is ongoing, is they're trying to capture the humor of a sometimes very online generation. And you may be asking, well, Bobby, how does that change anything? I mean, like every teen comedy that's been made has tried to capture the humor of the current generation, and that's hard. And you're very right. But I think the added caveat of being online makes this job 10 times harder. Because think about it. If you are a Gen Z member who has been on the internet, you know how quickly things move. One month, there is a trend that will go crazy viral. And then the next month, it's completely out of style and completely out of date. And we can talk about how quickly the trend cycle is and how that's like not really the best thing, especially for things like fashion. But for the sake of brevity here, Things move very fast on the internet, especially for the younger generation. They kind of pick up things and drop things very, very quickly. And movies take a lot of time to be made, especially good ones. So obviously, it's not the easiest to try and capture the voice and tone of a generation whose speech and language and tone change basically at the drop of a dime. How do you do that? How do you do that effectively? It's really, really difficult. And by the time these these films end up coming out or these TV shows end up coming out, I, the generation that it's kind of supposed to be for ends up cringing at what it sounds like because they're speaking in terms that are, you know, that were popular at the time of when it was written. So even if you turn around a movie in say like six months from when you wrote that movie six months ago to when it is released, it's going to sound almost this like completely dated piece of media. And it's really not that old. It's like six months old, but it, it's going to sound old. And I think we haven't quite figured out how to toe that line within Hollywood, even with the inclusion of phones in a lot of like movies, it still feels very, very cringe. The way we talk about text feels very cringe. The way we talk about emojis can feel very cringe. And that's just because it feels extremely dated, even if it's not very dated. It could be a year old, but in film speak, that is 10 years old. It's almost magnified, you know what I mean? So I think it's very difficult to capture the the voice and tone, especially of Gen Z. And I think Gen Z is also a little bit different um, because a lot of, let's be real, a lot of what is the language of Gen Z now is just AAVE. So how do you tell that line of 
trying to sound like the younger generation while also not appropriating this culture that is not yours. I think a lot of people conflate the Gen Z tone with being internet slang or internet speak when it is in actuality AAVE that has been used since the the 70s. And for those of you who don't know, AAVE is um, African-American vernacular English or more commonly known as Ebonics in, in the 70s and 80s, but now is known as AAVE. So a lot of that is is thought to be Gen Z speak when it's not. So how do you how do you figure that out? How do you tell that line? How do you, you know, sound current while also not appropriating, you know, this other language that is not yours, especially if your main protagonist, neither of them are are black. Um, how do you figure that out? And I think Do Revenge really figured that out. You know, is it perfect? Is it spot on? No, not always. But I think what made Do Revenge work is that it was able to kind of marry what we loved about these classic teen comedies but give it a very contemporary look and feel. Now, maybe a year from now, we may look back on Do Revenge and be like, oh, you know, that's very cringy. I think that happened a lot with Not Okay that was released probably two months ago for Hulu. And it was, I think, a, a movie that was in production for a little while. And the main character is dressed in a very, I would say, like, 2020 online personality way and a lot of people were like oh this looks so cringy because she's she's dressed like she's from like 2020 and it's supposed to be set in 2022 blah 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 um but I think do revenge is going to be able to retain that timeless quality and I think a lot of that comes from from the writing so what about the writing made it so strong for me not just from like a narrative perspective and I'm going to I'm not going to spoil anything for the movie because I really, I believe that you should go and watch this movie. It's really, really good. But from a narrative, from a narrative and kind of writing and dialogue perspective, more specifically, I think they were able to remember that teens are also just kind of regular people too. So not everything that comes out of their mouth is, you know, internet speak um, or appropriated AAVE, let's be real. Um, not every single sentence that comes out of their mouth is that it's kind of deeper than that. It's the cadence in which they speak. It's the kind of the, the quick turns of, of when they're talking. There's one scene in the movie where, uh, Camila Mendez's character, Drea, who Camila Mendez is phenomenal in the movie. I think she just perfectly captures this kind of like marriage of the classic teen comedy style with a Gen Z twist. She was really, really great. Um, but there's one scene in <laughs> in the movie where she's kind of talking, um, she's talking to a character who's kind of having this big boisterous moment. And she says with the most kind of like, the most like kind of fake, but trying to be real um, empathy for this character being like, oh, you know, like, that's so sad. I hope she gets the help that she needs. Pray for Erica. And she like walks away like with her hands up in a peace sign. And that part of the movie was so funny to me because it is so, it is so this generation and how we, we talk and kind of the, the casual sarcasm of how we speak, but it's not so like online sounding. And yes, were there parts of it that sounded very like online speak? Yeah. But like, 
some people do actually talk like that. So it was okay to to kind of involve that thing. But I think Do Revenge works because it was borrowing what we love from those those classic 90s and 2000s teen comedies that have kind of, you know, reached the the you know, Hall of Fame of, of film, um, at least in my eyes it has, and was able to kind of bring it into the new age. I think a lot of what the the downfall of the teen comedy was, and especially from last year when I made that first episode, was a lot of those films were trying so badly to be those movies. But like I said at the top of the episode, they were very hollow. The purpose of a good teen comedy, and I think what those classic films had, is that at the core, there is a good story being told. Like, yes, can you have a so-so story with just really, really good dialogue? Yeah, you can. But I think what is kind of the the everlasting part of those movies is that there was a, stu- a good story being told as well as having really good dialogue, as well as having really great costumes and like set dressing and everything like that. Like you kind of are still wanting to make a good movie and making a good movie should be at the forefront of it. And I think that's what, that's why Do Revenge works. It takes those classic parts makes it contemporary, but at the forefront, wanted to make a good story. And I think that's why it will have this very timeless quality about it. You know, like, yeah, the clothes may may date it, maybe the, the way of talking may date it, but I think it'll have this everlasting quality simply because it set out to make a good movie at the forefront. That's the, the point. That's the, the story was was set out to have these engaging characters, put them in really interesting um, situations, and then have this kind of great conclusion about it. And I think the good thing about The Revenge is that it doesn't have the saccharinely sweet end either. It's kind of this like um, somewhat morally ambiguous uh, ending. And you kind of view these characters as being very morally ambiguous too. They're not so like, you know, cookie cutter, great teen. Like they're kind of the the leads of uh Eleanor and Drea are both kind of morally ambiguous in their actions and kind of just who they are as a person and the song the soundtrack of the movie is is phenomenal but I think the song that kind of really ties up the thesis of that film and kind of just there and not so much the the thesis but the the theming of the film is bitch by Meredith Brooks Um, which I've gone back and listened to a bunch of times since I watched the movie. And it really wraps up kind of what that film is about. And it's just the variety of a person. You can, you know, be a lot of different things contained in one person. And that is what Do Revenge explores. And I think that's a really interesting theme to explore within a teen comedy or a teen film as a whole, because teenagers are ever evolving. There are a lot of different things, just like adults, but like a little, it's a little bit more heightened because you're exploring a lot of different identities in this one period in your life. So while a year ago, I thought that the teen comedy was kind of on its last breath, I think as a referendum, on the death of the teen comedy and the state of the teen comedy as it is with the release of films like Do Revenge, I think the teen comedy is on the up and up. I think they're starting to understand that it's not about, you know, recreating those classic teen comedies beat for beat, but instead getting to the core of why those comedies worked so well and replicating that for a new generation, giving them, you know, original 
stories for their own generation rather than just giving them what previous generations wanted and repackaging it. It doesn't always work. And that's just kind of how I feel about remakes. Rare is it that a remake will work top to bottom. More often than not, they're just trying to package something that worked for a previous generation to a newer generation. And films don't exist without context. The reason why a lot of the originals of those remakes worked is because they worked within the context of when they came out. The what was what was the pop culture sphere like at the time of this movie coming out? You know, like a movie like Back to the Future. Did it work in 1985 because we were at this kind of weird crossroads of retro and futurism? Kind of sort sorta, yeah. But like would a remake of Back to the Future work now? Maybe that film is very of 1985. It works for 1985. And so I think that's why Dear Revenge really, really worked. And I think that's why the current teen comedies, if they follow that trend of Dear Revenge, will work is because they will take into account the context of when this film is coming out and honor that instead of shying away from it, but well, not leaning too heavily into it. It's a very complex tango, but I think the teen comedy of now is on the up and up, and we'll find a way to make it work. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time. It helps out the pod. You could tell me how you're feeling about the pod, and I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a very fun time on Twitter, I just have to say. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I need to go do a full teen comedy marathon ending with Do Revenge, I'm not going to be able to remember all of that. Bestie, I fully support that decision. So I put all that information for you in the description down below. You're welcome. As you could probably tell, I spent a lot of time thinking about these, these different concepts. And in this case, it was kind of a, a last minute decision. So I had to, to power through, but I listened to a lot of things while I'm, I'm writing and scripting out these episodes. And so I thought I'd share what this episode was powered by. So this week's episode was powered by the soundtrack for Do Revenge, specifically the songs Bitch by Meredith Brooks and Celebrity Skin by Hole. They just give me all the teen comedy vibes. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you will join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Hi, just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Galleon, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Galleon on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.